I am planting seeds of peace in my heart. And as they grow, I take them everywhere I go. Same's Pam Duncan. We here at Solutions Abound, along with our guest today, Rivera Sun, are also planting seeds of peace. Welcome, folks. You are listening to Solutions Abound. Solutions Abound airs on WFMP Radio 106.5 FM. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. If you'd like to express your views, you may email us at Solutions Abound. 2018, 2018, that's Solutions of Balance 2018 at gmail.com. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. We are your host for Solutions of Balance. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. We welcome you today for our guest, Rivera Sun. Rivera is an author, trainer, activist, and much more, as we'll learn in our conversation together. Welcome, Rivera, to Solutions to Violence. Thanks so much for having me on the program. Author, activist, Rivera Sun has written numerous books and novels, including The Dandelion Insurrection and award-winning Ari Ara series. She is a nationwide trainer in strategy for nonviolent change. Rivera is the editor of Nonviolent News. Her essays on peace and justice are syndicated by Peace Voice and have been published in hundreds of journals. She serves uh, on the advisory board of World Beyond War and the board of Backbone Campaign. Rivera is a program director at Passe Bene Pay Nonviolence. She has red hair, a twin sister, and lives in the Earthship House in the desert of New Mexico. Her website is www.riverasun, that's R-I-V-E-R-A-S-U-N.com. These are what the human imagination is woven from. These kinds of stories influence how we see the world and how we act in our lives. Yet, in large part, our epics teach that violence is a good way to solve our conflict. War is the background upon which heroes prove their valor. Even in Hollywood today, we're bombarded with narratives of violent heroism. If we don't change these stories, they'll kill us. Rivera, that's quite a statement. What is it about myths and epics and legends and folktales you feel can contribute to peacemaking? Well, I think our myths and epics and legends and stories that we tell have already contributed mightily to the world that we live in, sometimes for better, but often for worse in many ways. You know, if we look at some of the epics that we tell from multiple cultures, but especially from European-derived cultures or throughout U.S. culture, we see that we valorize violence in those who wield it, which in turn gives us a culture of violence right? Where we think it's just, honorable, noble, the only answer, the only solution, the best solution. But we know from our real experiences that using violence often comes with consequences, particularly if we're less advantaged in society or we're not the most privileged in our society, that there are laws against it, that we may face jail time, we may face retaliatory violence that causes harm to ourselves and our loved ones. And so the question becomes, is there another way? And what we're seeing is that nonviolent action and nonviolence actually offer us not just another way, but a way that is effective. We know that nonviolent struggle is twice as successful as violence in things like changing government regimes, ending occupations, stopping foreign invasions, the very things that we use war for currently in our current thinking. So when I write a story, when I write a novel, I'm always questioning why are we telling this story and what are we teaching along? with a good story. And in this day and age, should we be telling stories about the heroism of nonviolent action, of social movements, people working for change? Or do we need to keep rehashing these same old stories of violence and war? Okay, so 
Rivera son, you you claim you work six days a week, spend six hours a day taking actions for peace, but you don't look like the typical nonviolent activist standing out on a street corner someplace holding up a sign that says stop this war. What is it that you do? Well, I mean, in all transparency, I do quite a bit of that as well. I I do get out and hold my sign. I take part in marches. I join the boycotts. I support strikes. But what that quote is specifically speaking about is that one of my largest forms of, let's say, peace activism is by writing novels, is by doing this culture hacking and transforming our idea that violence is where we prove ourselves worthy to stories that show that we can work for change with nonviolent action. So typically, a really good example of this is my Ariara series, which takes classic fantasy the classic fantasy genre, adventure, magic, mystery, people working against great odds. And instead of uh, having, you know, the young boy or the young girl pick up a sword and win a war, we have the young heroine actually stopping a war. And that is where valor is proven. So a lot of the action that I do is actually about giving alternatives to the, the systems and structures of violence that we have now. And I'm happy to report that actually young people and people of all all ages seem to really enjoy these stories and they really feel like it not only is a great story to read and it's not only just hopeful but it's also connected to the things we're seeing in real life that if you look around at our middle school generation our high schoolers increasingly huge numbers of them have engaged in nonviolent action already in their young lives they have walked out of school against overtesting against gun violence and for climate justice this is one of the most active generations in U.S. history, and they should be honored and respected for that. The stories we tell should reflect that part of the reality that they are living. Okay, so for nearly 10 years, you've been on a writer's mission to prove that good stories do not require violence to deliver an action-packed, heart-thrilling adventure, as you explained. So first, you wrote The Dandelion Insurrection to begin your writing, and we definitely want to talk to you about that. But first, tell us a bit about your journey that brought you to this point of waging peace by writing. Well, I uh, knew at a young age that I would enjoy being a writer, but it took me a while to get there. I uh, studied dance and theater in college, which actually was a great preparation for understanding character, for imagining yourself inside of a story. And then I ran a dance theater company for seven years in California and uh, told a lot of stories in that modality and that kind of way of storytelling. Then I moved to the desert in New Mexico and uh, had a lot of time and space for a little period of time. Uh, there. So I started to write novels. I just sat down one day and said, I wonder if I could write a novel. And by the time I got to writing my second novel, The Dandelion Insurrection, I had posited a hidden corporate dictatorship. It seemed to me that we had a problem with corporate power in this country and that it acted and wielded its power in a rather dictatorial fashion. So I decided to write a speculative fiction novel where the problems that we see in our world were a little bit worse. And then I didn't want to just write dystopian fiction. So I did positive movement for change, but I didn't really know very much about nonviolent movements for change. So I did what every self-respecting millennial does. I actually Googled it, how to bring down dictators nonviolently. And I thought, you know, maybe somebody else has written speculative fiction about this. 
what came back was millions of hits on how people have done this all over the world. There have been 50 nonviolent revolutions in the last 30 years. Most of those have been successful. And people have been using nonviolent action to basically reshape our social and political world. And as I read these stories, as I started to learn more, as I researched how nonviolent struggle worked, I realized that the shape of my life experience has been formed by these struggles. Things like the fall of the Soviet Union that was in large part done by Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and some of the other countries in the area having their nonviolent revolutions for independence. Things like the environmental movement that has protected forests, that has stopped whaling, that has prevented nuclear power plants by the thousands from being built, that has risen up again and again. Certainly the racial justice movements of recent years, uh, although there's a lot of controversy around whether they're violent or nonviolent, in reality, 95 to 98% of the Black Lives Matter protests this summer were nonviolent in nature, although they were met with violent repression from the police and by counter-protesters. Yeah. What do you mean by a Sisyphean task? So Sisyphus was a an old hero or character, let's say, who was cursed to roll a stone up a hill. And just as he got it to the top, it would roll back down and he would have to roll it up again until, you know, the, the curse was on him until he achieved that, but he never could achieve it. So sometimes as activists, uh, we feel this, you know, we feel like we're constantly rolling that rock up the hill and sweating and making great effort only to get so close and have it roll back down. So sometimes it can feel that way. But I think if we look at the arc of social justice in our world, even though we face tremendous challenges, we still have made significant advancements and we are still out there pushing for change. And the changes that have been wrought in society, although they've always been controversial as they're coming to fruition, when we look around and we look at the increasing levels of respect between men and women, between people of different races, between different sexualities, different religions, to me, these are very important advances in our societies. They're the ways that two human beings can look at each other and see one another with respect, equality, and maybe a sense of curiosity and wonder about the stories that each of those people hold. And so to me, this is extremely important and an important step for humanity to take in the foundation upon which we stand when we start to disrupt um, systems of injustice. You've talked a little bit about where you got the ideas for Vandalian uh, insurrection, but when you say fear is used to control and love is used to rebel, is how we rebel. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so that's one of the slogans in the fictional uh, story of the dandelion insurrection. And what I mean by that is fear is often used to control people, to keep us obedient, to keep us participating in injustice, to keep us from speaking out. And one might argue that courage is how we counter fear, right? But beneath courage is always something, is, is often something even more primal, even more fundamental to who we are. And that is love love of our families, love of our communities, love of um, one another. And that is where we find the courage to stand up when an injustice is happening, to say this is not right, and we need to work for what is right. So I say that love is what gives us the courage to rebel against the control of others. 
you know, there's a farm that has something to do with your writing, the Dandelion Insurrection. What did a farm have to do with writing this book? Well, I grew up in northern Maine, which is where the Dandelion Insurrection starts. And my family has a, a small organic farm called Skylandia Farm. And um, the area that we grew up in is, is a French Acadian area. That's where the, the story starts. And one of the things that's special to me about this is that we often go through life thinking that resistance and action is something that only activists do, only extraordinary people do. But it's actually not true. Resistance and nonviolent action is done by people who maybe our neighbors, maybe our school teachers, maybe the people we've been living around our whole lives and we didn't know it. And in the St. John Valley, where I grew up, the French Acadians have lived in resistance to English-dominant culture for 400 years. They were deported by the English, rounded up, put on boats, and shipped to Louisiana, which is where the word Cajun comes from, from Acadian. They, when they moved back to the area years later, the uh, English and then the Americans both banned the speaking of French. But despite it all, they've, become, they've been a people that are very willing to stand up for the rights of their community. When the paper mill didn't want to pay the workers, they shut down the railroad tracks to support the strike. When the potato farmers were getting manipulated by international prices, they took the potatoes to the border and they dumped them on the bridge, shutting down the international border for days. So these kind of stories always tickle me. Uh, they show how lively humanity is, how willing we are to stand up for justice, how struggle happens in unique ways to the unique places that it is occurring. Well, you published this in 2013, and it's recommended for children, really young adults, 12 to 18, 7 to 12. Why this particular group? Well, I think, I think that's funny. I think it's a good story for everyone. But it turns out that several high schools have been reading The Dandelion Insurrection because it actually, it shows a lot of nonviolent action in action. It's pretty entertaining. It's very engaging. And it's a good place to start discussions about the issues that matter to our lives. You know, because it is speculative fiction, akin to the way that 1984 can be called speculative fiction, it raises certain questions that we need to be pondering. What powers are held by politicians and governments? Should they have the right to those powers? What do we do if they start to enforce some of the laws that are on the books that are in violation of civil liberties and civil rights. What does resistance look like when we do it as a community? What are the things that are dangerous when we stand up for what's right? And how do we surmount those dangers? To me, these are all questions that are important for anyone of any age to consider. But when we have a young generation that has been so active and so courageous in their actions, then these are questions that matter deeply to their lives, perhaps as much or more as learning to drive and getting a driver's license. I think understanding how nonviolent action works is something that we all need to know because we're all going to need to use it in these times. We've had guests who suggested that uh, there should be courses in the high school or other schools, lower schools maybe, that focus on peace and peace action. I think there are some, of course, there are programs in colleges now. There are, there are curriculums. There are some in, I guess, the lower grades too, but 
Well, by default, we have become a culture that teaches and studies and learns violence and war. It's in our books, it's in our movies, it's in our high school curriculum, it's in all of our curriculum, which is basically history is a litany of our wars. If we don't consciously teach peace, how can we expect our culture and our young people and people of all ages to wage peace, to work with peace, to use nonviolence versus violence, to understand why peace is worthwhile, to understand what the tools of conflict resolution are, to be able to challenge when we're going to war unjustly and illegally, to understand the true cost of war versus just the benefits of war, right? What do some people in this country gain by going to war? And what do the rest of us lose? So I think peace education is very important. And I think uh, we should have more of it in our public schools. I think we also underplay the history of nonviolent actions in shaping the U.S., right? We're very attached to our guns and we're very attached to the things that we've gained through the, the use of those guns. But we're not as good at, at recognizing and honoring that women have suffrage because of nonviolent action. Black people and white people can sit together in the cafeterias because of nonviolent action. We are not, we are not contaminated with a nuclear meltdown of a power plant because of nonviolent action. That the early labor movement Although, you know, there were uses of violence in that, the predominant tool of action was strikes, which is a nonviolent action. So while we study violence in U.S. history, we don't study how we have waged struggle primarily using nonviolent means to achieve social justice goals. And this is very important for the well-being of ourselves and our community, and we should be learning it. Sure, and we'll get back to that issue of teaching peace in our schools in a minute. But first, we want to talk about the book you wrote, Zadie Bird Gray. It delves into the light of Charlie Ryder. Just who is Zadie Bird Gray? Who is Charlie Ryder? And what makes him so important here? So those are the primary protagonists of the Dandelion Insurrection. And they are just two young people who start to stand up for, for change. They are tired of living in a world where corporations and rich people determine what the shape of their lives are going to look like. And so they, um, Zadie starts to collect stories of people who are resisting that agenda, who are standing up for one another, who are treating their communities with kindness and respect. And Charlie writes down the stories and circulates them throughout the country. Because the story that stays in one place is powerful, but a story that goes to other places like the seeds of a dandelion can inspire other people to take similar action. So these are two protagonists, but they're just, and they are the central protagonists of the story, but there are many more like Inez Hernandez and Tansy Bolil and just a whole cast of characters that I tried to make as um, complex and, and interesting as the real life cast of characters that you might find uh, standing up for justice in our country. Sounds like you made a conscious effort to have various uh, cultures in, included in uh, names of these characters? Yeah, and some of the perspectives that they bring to the work that they're doing. You know, I think all of us as writers and as a culture are becoming more and more conscious that we have this incredible diversity in this country, and it's not something to be afraid of. It is something to honor and celebrate and to make 
make space for and hear the stories from. So, you know, when people ask me what I'm reading, I often like to tell them, I like to read writers who are not like me at all, who come from very different cultural backgrounds and perspectives, because there are ways that they look at the world that make me stop and sit back and think. What, what was I taught? What was I brought up with? And how can I look differently at this situation? What are the strengths and, and insights that each person can bring to the world that we live in? That one of us alone cannot have all the answers to the problems that we face, but all of us together certainly have some really creative and unusual and innovative ideas about how to move forward. You know, it's to the credit of Black activists in this country that we have restorative justice being brought into the schools, but restorative justice itself is rooted in Indigenous practices, right? To me, this is such an exciting trend that we're starting to introduce into our young people. The idea that justice doesn't have to be a punishment or a slap on the wrist. Justice can be a love that heals. It can be a way of accounting for the things that we ourselves might have done wrong. And it can be a way of holding people accountable in ways that are really meaningful, that are possibly transformative, that help to prevent the situation from happening again. That's a great example of a solution that is rooted in a culture that is not from the background that I come from, that I fully support and think we need more of. Many of us uh, consider peacemaking as, as a very serious subject. So why, why use mythical characters in a book that concerns itself with such a serious subject? Well, if you stop for a minute and think about what your favorite story was as a young person, or think about what your favorite story was is right now, when we hear a story that we love, we try to emulate the characters within it for better or for worse. When I was a young person in the 80s and 90s, there were a lot of stories that were coming out about, you know, hero girls with swords. That was the brand of women's empowerment at the time. And I wanted nothing better than to grow up and wield my sword and like kill the bad guys. But when I did grow up, I recognized that swords are a little bit outmoded and um, that the tools that are being used to, let's say, vanquish bad guys, quote unquote, are not just guns and bombs with the U.S. military, which is, I could critique if how we, how we wield that, but also the tools of nonviolent action, right? So I, I do think that stories are powerful. And I do think stories are a very serious pursuit. We may laugh, we may cry, we may like go into a fictional realm, but fiction is not any less serious than a news report. And we should take it very seriously. The ideals of things like King Arthur or Robin Hood or um, the Lord of the Rings are ideas and concepts that very much influence how we think about approaching situations. And so we need to write fiction that is compelling, but is also useful for the times that we're in, that shows that courage and dedication, loyalty, perseverance, sacrifice can be found within people who are standing up for, for what's right using the tools of nonviolent action. So people who are going on strike from work or walking out of schools or shutting down a road or blockading a pipeline. To me, these are these are heroes of our times and our fictional stories can reflect those truths that we are seeing in our world today. Well, we mentioned the Earthship community at one point. I wonder if you could give us a sense of how do you envision the folks who are creating Earthship are your heroes? How are they contributing to nonviolence or peacemaking? That's a great question. So I rent this beautiful Earthship. I live in it in New Mexico. And for those who have never seen an Earthship, 
it's a little bit like a hobbit hole or a hobbit house. So it is dug into the side of a hill. It faces south. And so it has a whole wall of huge windows on the front. And the sunlight that comes in in the winter warms the house. So even though it snows here where I live from November through the end of February, we don't actually have to heat our house. Think about that. There's snow outside on the ground and the sunlight is keeping us warm. And that's because the earth itself stays at 50 degrees year round. So our house will never get colder than 50 degrees. And then the sunlight will add warmth on top of that. So it could be snowing outside and it's 60, 70 degrees in here. Conversely, in the summertime, when the earth tilts on its axis, the overhang of our roof, because the sun is higher in the sky, shades the house. So we, it's kept cool and the sunlight doesn't come in. So then the 50 degrees of the earth then cools the house down like natural air conditioning. I could go on and on. The airships collect their own rainwater. The, most of them are off grid. So they're using solar panel or uh, solar power or wind power. They often have planter beds in the inside where they're growing some of their own food. The, these uh, type of architecture is very low impact on the earth. It's really well designed and it's a way of practicing nonviolence towards the earth, which in turn is a way of practicing nonviolence towards all of humanity. Because if we practice violence towards the earth and we continue to use fossil fuels and we continue to eat factory farmed food and which involves nitrates runoff, which then kills the ocean, I could go on. There's a lot of causes of the, the pollution and environmental degradation that we face in the climate crisis. Those are all forms of violence towards the earth. And if we don't have a planet to live on, then humanity cannot survive. So I, I see living in an earthship the way that we do is a way of practicing nonviolence and living in, in a nonviolent way. Yeah, you did that in, in 2012. You, you moved in, and that's when you started writing the novels, correct? So, that is correct. So it was, what was it in the Earthship that helped you begin to write novels? Well, like I mentioned, uh, <laughs> we live kind of in the middle of nowhere. So I, I wasn't like running out to hang out with friends uh, that often. There weren't a lot of distractions. It's a very focused place to write. And so I think the, the quiet and the focus are really helpful for my writing process personally. So that that's part of what helps me. I could write from anywhere at this point, but I think the, the quiet, especially in the beginning, kind of forced me to focus and to really think about what needs to be said right now and what would I like to say and how can I contribute through the stories that I tell. Rivera's son, there are only two books that are awarded the Monotane Medal each spring. It's presented to the most thought-provoking books. The Monotane Medal is given in honor of the great French philosopher, Michael de Montaigne, who influenced people such as William Shakespeare, René Descartes, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Frederick Nietzsche, Jean Rousseau, Eric Hoff, Eric Hoffer, American moral and social philosopher. The award recognizes books that are either illuminating progress or redirecting thought. You have been recognized recently as a finalist for the 2021 Montagame Medal. What does this award mean to you? Well, it's an interesting little prize. I'm not sure I agree with all the philosophers behind the, uh, who it was named after, but it's a prize that is especially aimed at books that make you think, that are thought-provoking, that are really questioning things. And to me, that's a great honor. I love the idea that people are seeing my work in the context of questioning what's going on in our world, questioning some of the assumptions that we've been taught, particularly around violence. And so to be 
even listed as a finalist for this award is a great honor. It's just a very select, limited group of people. And it's a recognition, I think, that the Dandelion Insurrection is a novel of its times that is asking us to think deeply about the challenges that we face, but also the solutions and the tools that we have at our disposal for waging struggle in an era where this kind of work is critically important. You know, I think a lot about books like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle and John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, each of which were novels about the early labor movement that helped to capture the, the, the passion and the problems and the solutions and the ways that people were working for change and social justice. And I'm honored to think that my writing is being recognized as a book that helps us contextualize these times and contextualize movements for change as a necessity during these times. So it, it is a great honor and I'm happy to be awarded, to be known, to be recognized as a finalist for it. Well, you've, uh, you are the founding editor of Nonviolent News. It's published weekly, I believe. It began in 2019. It's the largest international journal devoted to the use of nonviolence in, in mass movements. As an editor, you're regularly bringing you say 30 to 50 topical articles to readers by covering nonviolence, ranging from Myanmar's creative resistance, hummingbirds, allies, and uh, the perilous times for people on the planet, Black Lives Matter, Earth Day, women's safety worldwide, and a lot of others. You suggest that Nonviolence Now project works to make the media landscape a healthier, positive space, especially for young people who spend a lot of time, a high percentage of their time online. What's the connection between the projects of Nonviolence Now and Nonviolence News? So several years ago, I was invited to be a part of a project called Nonviolence Now. This was um, a campaign to interrupt the cycle of violence on digital uh, platforms by placing advertisements for um, nonviolent solutions or nonviolent practices in the middle of places that were selling guns, that were selling violent video games, um, just to give a little flash in people's consciousness that they have, are getting addicted and sucked into the culture of violence. As that project uh, continued, we uh, started running a little newsletter that would try to round up stories about how people were using nonviolence in our world. And that grew into Nonviolence News. Now, each week we do collect those 30 to 50 stories of nonviolence in action from around the world each and every single week. Nonviolent action is happening all the time, and we really don't see it at the volume, scale, intensity, and effectiveness that it is going on. Some of the great stories that I, I'd love to share just from this past week include the Yaqui women, who the Yaquis are, are indigenous people in what we now call Mexico. There was an illegal pipeline that was put in place on their land. So the Yaquis gathered their community and they went down to where the pipeline was and they actually deconstructed it and then sold it for, for scrap metal. <laughs> right? Brilliant. Also in Scotland this week, two Indian men who, who were serving at a homeless shelter, helping out feeding people with soup. The Home Office of England came to arrest them because they were still waiting for their citizenship papers. So they were put into a van, uh, kind of like ICE does here in the United States, and the van was going to drive off with them. But one of their neighbors laid down underneath the van 
and refused to let the van move. And then all the other neighbors came and surrounded the van, chanting, let them go, let them go. They're our neighbors, let them go. And there were so many people there that eventually the police themselves ordered the home office to release the two men and to resolve the situation, not by deporting these valuable members of their community, but by actually getting those citizenship papers in motion and getting them actually fully made citizens. To me, this is some of the the great stories about nonviolent action, that it can be direct, it can be effective, it can be bold, it can be creative. And we just, we cover all sorts of stories and nonviolence news. It's very eye-opening. It kind of restores your faith in humanity a little bit. Well, I see what you mean by interrupt business as usual. <laughs> Rivera, you offer a study guide also, the nonviolent action. This is used by activist groups and university courses. Would you suggest this guide be used for younger people, high school, middle school maybe? It has been used in high schools before. It goes along with the novel. So the idea is that people can read the novel, which is very fun, very lively, great reading. Your students will probably never complain about reading it. And then they can work with the study guide, which uses examples from the book to teach how to organize an effective campaign. But it's also designed so that if you haven't read the book, you can still use it just substituting your own issue that you're working on for the examples in in the, the guide part of it. So yeah, I would say it's pretty good for all ages. I know a lot of older activists, adults have used it in their work. I've taught workshops and webinars around it or the content in it. And what I'm really trying and striving to do with that study guide is in the course of writing the Dandelion Insurrection and now through my years of being an activist, I've gotten to learn and study so much about strategy for movements. There is really a science and an art to how to wage struggle and win. And most of us don't encounter it. I mean, there's certainly not, we're not taught in high school. And most of us, if we don't study a really social justice oriented poli-sci in in college don't necessarily encounter this. So learning the this particular information is really important to us if we want to make change. We need to know how to withdraw our support. We know how, need to know how to intervene and get in the way of business as usual. We need to know that a successful campaign is more than just lifting our voices up and just making a lot of noise. Successful struggles find ways to remove support from the injustice and leverage that non-cooperation in exchange for power holders meeting your demand. And so these are some of the things that I try to teach in, in my classes now to pass on what I had the privilege and the honor to learn and make sure that more and more and more of us know this knowledge so that we can stand up for the justice and the changes that are really needed right now. The Way Between is our number one book in the Ari Aro series that, that includes uh, other ones, the, the Way Between, the, the first one, the Lost Air, the Desert Song, the Adventures of Arian. The series follows the uh, adventures of the young orphan, Ari Aro, and she learns to wage peace, work for justice, and make change in her world. Uh, you've mentioned that before. Tell us a little, about, a little bit about the series. Yeah, so after the dandelion insurrection started to pick up in popularity, I started to get these funny emails from people saying, that was so great. I love that book. Do you have anything for young people or younger people? 
And I said, you know, I don't, and maybe I should. So I took the fantasy genre, which is one of my favorite genres to read. I love the creativity of it. I love the adventure of it. And young people love it too. And I said, what would this genre look like if instead of violence and war, we had nonviolence and waging peace? Would it still work? So the Arihara series is an experiment. (laughs) It's um, about a young heroine who is an apprentice to a an older warrior who also teaches this strange kind of blend of aikido and nonviolence and peace skills and then she goes on to use them to stop a war to try to correct a a social injustice where migrant workers are being forced to trade their labor for the water that their desert lands need to help to restore women's rights. And the series will go on. I'm in the middle of writing the fourth book right now. But what I've heard from parents and teachers and young readers and readers of all ages, actually, is that this is really working for them. They love the stories. They get really excited about them. I've heard messages from parents who are like, my kid is practicing the way between in the backyard. My daughter dressed up like Ariara for Halloween. Teachers are finding out about it and invite and reading it with their class, teaching peace skills through it. Um, they have me zoom in with them. Uh, and it's really heartening to see that a good story can indeed teach us the skills that we need for these times. You are associated with the Backbone Campaign. Its mission is to amplify the aspirations of, quote, we the people, end quote, with creative strategies and artful activism to manifest a world where life, community, nature, and our obligations to future generations are honored and sacred. Would you expand on what you mean by we the people? So I serve on the board of Backbone Campaign, which is a organization that, as you said, does a lot of wonderful work supporting activist groups. And, you know, we the people is a phrase that we get from our early founding documents in the United States. And I think everyone has defined that a little differently, but for myself and for Backbone Campaign, I think we're trying to be as inclusive about that phrase as possible to recognize that we, the people, are the people of the United States, all of us together, and that many of us are left out of the political conversation or sidelined or silenced, or our voices and our views are thought of as less important than somebody else's. So what does it look like when we start to deal with the conflicts that we have in our country in a way that puts people on a level playing field in terms of their views, that says the concerns about the indigenous groups in this area, about the dams that are blocking this river, are as important as the power companies want desire to produce electricity through hydroelectricity, right? Historically, one of those groups has been disenfranchised. And what does we the people mean when we the people includes everyone? Yeah. Okay, we understand you're the program director for the Patsé Vinet campaign, Nonviolence. We had a wonderful interview and conversation with Dr. Kit Evans Ford in the spring of 2019. What's been your experience with uh, Patsé Vinet and, and what did you learn from them? Yeah, so Pachi Ibene is a 30-year-old nonviolence organization. Pachi Ibene means peace and all good in Italian. 
And the group was started by Franciscans, but now it is includes people of all faith backgrounds. Um, and I serve as their program coordinator for a couple of projects. One is their campaign nonviolence program, which has a mission to uh, build a culture of peace and active nonviolence free from war, poverty, racism, and environmental destruction. They organize in all 50 states and across around the country, uh, the, the world, actually. And every year they hold a week of actions, which now has over 4,000 action and events for these goals. And so we have people who are teaching peace skills to young kids who are opposing nuclear weapons, who are standing up for um, racial justice, who are working for climate solutions, who are trying to stop pollution in their water systems. There's a wide range of goals, um, but people are working towards these goals with nonviolent action. And uh, the other program they run is something called the Nonviolent Cities Program, where people set out on an effort to help their cities implement nonviolent solutions, systems, and practices in every level of their city, whether that's with their faith groups or in their public schools or with the city council, or, you know, how do we train our regular citizens to de-escalate violence when it seems to be happening in front of their eyes on the subway or stop a hate crime from happening. These efforts are very broad and ambitious. And my job with the organization is to support organizers in their local areas, to lift up great ideas and resources and circulate them in the network so we know what solutions are possible, and to, you know, make sure our educational programming with the organization supports the needs of, of our local organizers. You're seen as a strong advocate and, uh, for peace and, and resolving conflict without violence, so even though, as uh, Andrew Preston's book, Sword of the Spirit and Shield of Faith, it points out American exceptionalism is based on religious mythology. The concept is often used to justify war and militarism because many believe that uh, America is exceptional. Militarism, as you've mentioned, has become a, a huge ideology. And those who oppose militarism and war waged by the American military are usually seen as unpatriotic. So what do you say to those who might accuse you of being unpatriotic because you're a strong advocate of peace and in opposition to militarism? Yeah, well, I don't think Dwight Eisenhower was unpatriotic. I don't think Helen Keller was unpatriotic. I don't think so many of the people that stood up for peace and lesser militarism were unpatriotic. Uh, Dr. King famously stood up against the triple evils, which included militarism. And while I know there are some people who would say he was unpatriotic, I think Dr. King's life and legacy was one of the most deeply honoring of the potential and the ideals of this country that we have ever seen in this country. So I think we need to really rethink why we have defined patriotism as blind loyalty to militarism right? That this is not actually a very American value. If you really dig into the history of the United States, that many Americans have questioned our wars and our militarism, and for very good reasons. And so when we say that only supporting our troops and our wars is patriotic, then we're, we're really ignoring our own history. Many people don't even know, for example, that 
U.S. independence was not won after the shot that was heard around the world. U.S. independence was actually won through a decade of nonviolent civil resistance actions that were some of the most robust and effective in the entire world. So much so that John Adams said that a history of military operations is not the history of the American Revolution. The revolution was won in the hearts and the minds of the people before those even commenced. And John Adams was there. He knows what he was talking about. He knew that we had waged 95 to 98% effective boycotts against the British. He knew that women were involved in tremendous ways in these campaigns. He knew that we were functionally independent of Great Britain before the Declaration of Independence made a statement of fact that we were independent from them. So, you know, there's a whole other side of our U.S. history that we're, we're ignoring when we valorize just our war and our military. And I think for me, the deepest patriots are the ones that love the people of this country, who are willing to define we the people as all of us, and who are willing to understand that the well-being of our people does not mean that it has to exclude the well-being of any other peoples in the world. And that are willing to be as boldly revolutionary as this country has a history of being in looking at what are the solutions to the problems that we face. Is our military the best solution to violent extremism of all kinds? Or are we just making more extremists around the world? Is our economic policy backed up by our military? creating a more safe and prosperous nation? Or is this strategy actually impoverishing ourselves and making us enemies all over the world? These are ways of being patriotic to your country, of showing your love for your country. We don't need blind obedience. That is not an American value. We need courageous love, courageous questioning, courageous willingness to say, what is exceptional? And are we really achieving that ideal? Do we need to just rest on our laurels or can we proceed towards greater human rights, greater civil liberties, greater well-being, technologies that keep our water safe, our air safe, our children safe, right? So that's what I say to people who wonder if I'm patriotic because I believe in peace. I don't think those those can't coexist, but I think you need to be as bold and courageous about questioning these things. Yeah, you're right. The pacifist revolution that occurred before the Revolutionary War is not in our history books. That pacifist revolution led by mostly Quakers, in addition to all those other boycotts that, that were demonstrated. The Quakers went into all the courts all over New England, except for the state of Virginia, and took out the judges, the loyal British judges, and replaced them with loyal Americans. So the British had no way of enforcing British law. And people in the British Parliament were asking King George, why don't we just let him go? Why don't we just let the United States become independent? And George's answer was, well, he's afraid that the only reason he gave, because it was costing the, the British a lot more money to keep us under their control than it would have been if they had just, the U.S. developed its own independence. So his answer was, well, I'm afraid Ireland will go also. But you're right. The revolution was over before the first bullet was fired. It was really a choice to use military force to counter what we could have called the War of Reclamation when Great Britain tried to reinvade and take us over, basically, after we were independent. And it was a choice to wage that with military struggle. We could have continued um, civil resistance 
in the, the style that we had been using. And, you know, it was a very costly choice. It set in motion a lot of the injustices that have plagued this country for a long time, notably the war debt for fighting a military operation, set in motion some of the, the problems with oligarchy and extreme inequality. It set in motion a whole pattern around the veterans of that war, not really getting their fair due. That is something that we have people upset about right now. So yeah, I think, you know, it's it's worth uh, setting off a few fireworks on the 4th of July by learning a little bit about this history and bringing it up uh, over the, the burgers and the corn and the cob. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's get back, Rivera. Uh, you have hosted radio talk shows and have a Facebook page. I don't know how you have time to do all this, except you, you deal with the same topics and issues as we've been discussing. What do you feel a talk show contributes to uh, and accomplishes? Yeah, so I ran two nationally syndicated radio shows for four years, two years with Occupy Radio and two years with a program called Love and Revolution Radio. And what I found in that time and with social media continuingly is that using these platforms to lift up some of the issues we've been talking today or that your program focuses on is really important because people need to know the solutions that exist out there, some of which that have decades of experience to back them up. We're having a lot of controversy right now around things like defund the police, but the things that people are asking to redirect money to right now are not these wacky ideas that somebody just invented last night. They're programs like community safety teams or street teams that draw upon decades of experiences of uh, de-escalating violent conflict. They are asking for social services and people trained in mental health crises to be the first responders, which is not a new idea. We used to fund these things and then we defunded them and chose to do an experiment with militarized police, which hasn't really worked out well for dealing with mental health. So programs like this are a great way for people to find out about solutions. They're also a great way for people to hear voices and opinions and perspectives that are not being brought to primetime news. They're a great way for for people to engage with the thought-provoking philosophies that we need to wrestle with in this day and age. And, you know, we think that social media is really inane, but actually it's it's as smart or as intelligent as you use it for right? So anytime you're going onto a social media platform, connect with people who are using it to uplift the best of our humanity, to talk about things that matter, and talk to one another in ways that lift up our common dignity, that raise our mutual respect for one another. Engage with people as you would like to be treated and see what happens on social media, or be the person who breaks the cycle of dehumanization that can happen in our Twitter, our, our tweets to one another, or our Facebook thread comments. So I really believe in using the tools that we have to occupy those spaces with the messages that need to be shared, but also to behave in such a way, myself and with other people, that is in alignment with my principles and my integrity. And I think if all of us did that, then we would find ourselves living in a very different kind of a world. Can we go international for a moment? We're about to run out of time. I want to get your ideas on this. You said the U.S. has blood on its hands. We arm and fund Israel. The latest attacks on uh, Palestinians should be condemned, not condoned. None of this should be carried out with U.S. tax dollars. 
Do you believe the United States should stop funding Israel war crimes? I definitely think we should leverage our aid to Israel as a sanction so that Israel starts to behave in accordance with internationally recognized standards of human rights. I think, you know, we could make the Israel-Palestine conflict very complicated. We could talk about history, but we could also just be really upfront with the fact that Israel has recently killed and bombed many, many people, including children. They've evicted 40,000 people from their houses and that this is not acceptable. And I know it's controversial for people, but I think, you know, we need to recognize that our country is complicit in these actions. And if we're willing to look at what's going on and it breaks our heart, then we should be willing to speak up and uh, condemn, not condone, the actions that Israel has been taking. And this shouldn't be as controversial as it is. And I think that we need to be really clear about that at this time. Well, Rivera, there's so much more uh, we, I think we could talk about, but uh, we are close to being out of time. Are there some last thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners and uh, how to access some of the materials or, or other peacemaking materials? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to invite the listeners to look up Nonviolence News at nonviolencenews.org. It's really eye-opening. It changes how you look at the world to recognize what people are doing, that nonviolence isn't just something that Gandhi or King does, uh, that nonviolence is something that all of us are doing constantly, all the time, in very creative and innovative ways, that we kind of give it a bad rap. We think it's weak, it's passive, but actually the truth is it's strong, it's active, and it's surprisingly effective. So this is where people often ask me as a novelist, where do you get your ideas? I get them from real life. I get them from learning what people are doing and weaving those into my novels. If people want to read my novels, the best place you can get them is on my website, www.riverasun.com. But you can also find them on all the major online bookstores. And your local bookstore can also order them directly. So if you have a favorite local bookstore, please ask them to order them. Well, folks, we are out of time. We want to thank uh, peace activist, author, trainer, professional playwright, choreographer, and environmentalist, Rivera Sun. It's been a pleasure, Rivera, having you with us today. We look forward to enjoying more of your writing and, and views and nonviolent news, peace voice, essays, and other exciting endeavors you can, can send our way. Thank you so much, and thank you for the great job that you do with this program. Thank you. Solutions to Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Our Solution to Violence program featuring Rivera Sun airs again Tuesday, June 1st, and Wednesday, June 2nd. Okay, to listen live stream then, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Listen Live Now. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Rivera Sun will be placed in the WFMP archives. You may access those at any time after the broadcast airs. And to visit our archives, go to our Forward Radio website, forwardradio.org. Choose Program Archives, then Solutions to Violence program that features Rivera Sun. For more information and schedule our programming that will surprise, delight, and challenge you, visit forwardradio.org. As your host, Jim Johnson, and myself, Jamie McMillan. Thank you for joining us. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Thank you for joining us in our explorations for solutions to violence.